Hello and welcome to another episode of the Metal Shop Podcast with me, Big Frog. Now this week I'm going solo on an episode about the Scorpions. Now the reason I'm going solo is a couple of reasons. One, I'm having surgery next week on my deviated septum so I won't be able to talk for a while. So I wanted to get an episode out so you'll have something for the meanwhile. And two, because I've been getting way into the Scorpions lately. I got a box set with some DVDs in it. Uh, had some in-depth in interviews and stuff, information that I didn't know or that I had forgotten. And so I wanted to um, get this out to you guys because I get excited about this kind of shit when I see some shit that I haven't seen before and find out some information about the band that I didn't have before. And so I wanted to get it out, like I say. Um, as with all solo episodes... It's done at my house, so there's going to be noise, there's going to be airplanes flying by and kids playing outside and shit like that. Just ignore that shit, man. If you can handle the noise at a concert, you can fucking handle this. As usual, I'm going to start with uh, how I became aware of the Scorpions and how I became a fan of the band. So basically, for me, it all started in 82. The Blackout album was released. I was in seventh grade. Uh, this is right before the summer between 7th and 8th grade, which was to be a summer of discovery for your boy Big Frog, you know, um, during that time started hitting the alcohol, started hitting the weed a little bit, started hitting the pussy a little bit, and heavy metal was the soundtrack for these things, you know, my new music, you know, and, um, when Blackout came out, you know, the Scorpions were just kind of perfect for that time. You know, fucking party band, singing about sex, singing about, you know, rock and roll and all this kind of stuff. And so, of course, I was into it, you know. And when Blackout came out, you know, Can't Live Without You, No One Like You, Arizona, Dynamite, Blackout, fucking badass songs, you know. And if I'm not mistaken... It was kind of like Ricky and Tony, you know, my boys from, from back then who are still around, obviously. And they were like kind of more on the rock end of of bands that they liked. So they really liked the Scorpions a lot, whereas I was more Iron Maiden and Lenny was more Black Sabbath. But we all kind of liked what we all liked. So it all went into uh, into the cauldron, so to speak. And the Scorpions were great, man. I mean, they were uh, hard rock, but they were kind of more melodic. You know, girls liked them. There was chicks at the concerts, you know, stuff like that. It was very uh, cool. You know, the Scorpions were cool. That's that's the best way I could put it. 
So the Scorpions were kind of the soundtrack for the eighth grade, which was a big time for all of us. You know, we were uh, in our last year of St. Michael's, um, getting ready to go off to high school or whatever. I was getting ready to go off to Spain, you know, and, uh, and I did. And so when I got to Spain, I was into the Scorpions already. I had a good, you know, little primer on them. But they knew more about the Scorpions than I did when when I got there. You know, Phil and Tommy and George and Carlos and them dudes, they were in Europe. So they had a much better understanding of the Scorpions than I did. They knew about Love Drive. They knew about Animal Magnetism. They knew about these albums that I didn't know about. Because as far as I was concerned, they were like a new band with this Blackout album, you know. So... When I got there, I learned a lot more about the Scorpions, and we were into the Scorpions. And then when I got back, you know, Love at First Sting came out, and then they came on tour. And, you know, and uh, that was the recordings that would become Worldwide Live. And part of Worldwide Live was recorded in San Diego, and I was at that concert. I always thought that was awesome, you know, like on Coming Home, at the end of Coming Home, they're like... Like coming home to San Diego, and I'm like, fuck yeah, I was fucking there, you know, fuck it. Uh, badass. And as it was in those days, you know, we used to get backstage for a lot of concerts in those days. I don't know why we had a knack for it. It was uh, Tony. Tony got us uh, into a lot of places. He got us through a lot of crowds and into a lot of places, and. And I think I did too. And as it is with most of the things that, that you remember from when you're, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, whatever. I don't remember a lot of what happened when we got backstage. I just remember we got backstage. We saw the band. We saw chicks. We saw weird shit. But, you know, I don't really remember a lot of the interactions that took place or whatever. But the Scorpions were definitely one of the bands that we got backstage for. And the Love at First Sting tour was the fucking tour, man. Bad Boys Running Wild, Rocky Like a Hurricane, you know, I'm Leaving You, Coming Home, Big City Night, Still Loving You. And awesome shit because it was like a hair metal concert. It was like there was as many chicks at a Scorpions concert as there was like at a Motley Crue concert or Rat concert or Def Leppard concert. But the Scorpions were heavier, and they were a better live band. Hard rock, hard rock live band, you know. Um, so I continued to be into the Scorpions for a few more albums, and then I kind of stopped digging what they were doing, you know. Uh, they went away from their producer, Dieter Dirks, and they had a different sensibility, you know. Some of those power ballads, hit real hard on the charts and they decided they wanted to recreate that their sound became more you know streamlined and whatever and i really didn't care for for the for their last who knows five six albums whatever the fuck they are but i still love the band and i would still go see the band and that's almost the way that i still feel about it now because i don't own any of the albums that that the Scorpions have come out with like in the last 10 years or 15 years for that matter. But I have all the concert videos because I still watch that shit, you know? 
And they're still one of the great live bands. I mean, all the way up until I just saw Rock in Rio 2019. And they kicked the fuck out of that audience at 70 years old or whatever some of these dudes are, you know. So um, I followed the Scorpions up to a certain point, And then I started looking more backwards. Because when I got back from Spain too, I was pl- I was learning to play guitar. I was way into guitar players, getting those guitar magazines where I would read interviews with all the guys that I liked. And they talked about how, you know, Uli Roth was a great influence on, on them. Michael Schenker was a great influence on them. And both of these guys had been in the Scorpions. And I'm like, what the fuck? Okay, well, I need to look into this shit, you know. So then I started working backwards. And, you know, it was hit or miss with a lot of shit, you know, because the first Uli Roth albums that I was ready to find were the Uli Roth with Electric Sun, Firewind, and Beyond the Astral Skies. And these were not hard rock albums. These were not guitar albums, shred albums, anything like that. They were like this weird psychedelic orchestral shit. And I could not dig it at all. You know, I had much better luck with the Michael Shaker Group albums and UFO albums that I picked up to find out who the fuck Michael Shaker was. And those were a lot more to my liking. But uh, still in all, you know, back then you had to be real careful with what you bought because you couldn't just like right now, if I find out that a band that I like had some old guitar player, I get on YouTube and 10 minutes later, I can either, you know, say, hey, this shit was awesome or damn, that shit sucked. But back in those days, you had to actually first locate the records, which was no fucking, no easy task in those days. Then you had to pay 10, 15 bucks for it to get it home and then figure out if you liked it or not. So those were some risky days and some risky propositions with some of this shit, especially Uli Roth, because to me at that time, that Electric Sun shit was straight up bullshit. I've learned to appreciate it a little more now, but in those days, forget about it. So basically on this episode, this is what I'm going to cover from the beginning of the Scorpions all the way up until I lost interest in the albums of the Scorpions. So those are the albums that I'll be covering. Basically, from the first album, Lonesome Crow, to um, Worldwide Live, and maybe a couple of albums after that, but, you know, not much longer than that. Because, like I say, that's, that's when my interest in the band dwindled. Okay, so let me take you back to 1965. And in 1965, Rudolf Schenker is 17 years old. He's in uh, Hanover, Germany, and he's getting way into beat music, which is basically, to me, it's the Beatles. It's much more than the Beatles. It's um, any of those bands that came from Liverpool in those days, the Mersey Beat era, and there's a bunch of bands, but... The only of those bands that I had ever heard of or that were of any consequence to me were the Beatles. But to them in Europe at that time, there was a lot more bands and they made an impact on these young dudes in Germany, right? Rudolf wanted to 
to be a band. He had the name, the Scorpions. He wanted that to be the name of his band. But he wasn't really sure what he wanted to do. What type of music? Were they going to be beat music? Were they going to be like the more blues-based rock? Whatever it was. The bands in Germany during that time that were coming out of this uh, beat movement were known as Krautrock. It was somewhere in between beat music and blues-based rock with its own German kind of techno type of flavor, you know? Uh, it wasn't called techno at the time, obviously, but you know what I mean, electronic music. So they kind of put all this together into this thing that would be known as Krautrock, which would nowadays probably be a racial slur at, or something, but that's what they called it at that time. And so Rudolph had the idea for the band, the Scorpions, and Klaus was in a different band called Copernicus, which also featured Michael Schenker. Michael Schenker was 11 years old at that time. Klaus was 17, as was the rest of the band. But Michael was like so far ahead of the game that he was basically one of the hotter guitar players in Germany at the age of 11. So since Rudy wasn't able to find like a better guitar player, he's like, well, shit, man, my brother, he's only 11, but he kicks ass and he's got this singer named Klaus. I need to get them into the band, right? So he recruit them into the Scorpions and they join. So now the Scorpions are a band. There's Rudy Schenker, 17, Klaus Meine, 17, and they have this young hotshot guitar player, Michael Schenker, 11 years old, and they start playing shows and start trying to figure out like what kind of band they want to be. You know, Rudolph and Klaus are kind of established in this kraut rock beat music bass, and Michael, who's younger, obviously, is more into the um, British blues rock movement that was coming out, you know, Clapton, uh, Jeff Beck, Leslie West, dudes like that. So he's kind of pulling the band that way, and they're also still doing this, you know, kind of psychedelic kind of uh, kraut rock thing. They don't speak English, but they know that if they want to be a big band, they have to, their music has to be in English because otherwise they'll never get outside of Germany. So they start trying to write, you know, songs in English, and it proves to be difficult for them, you know. And by the time they go to record their first album, Lonesome Crow, five years later, that's still the case. You know, for example, there's a song on um, Lonesome Crow called Leave Me, and the lyrics go, Woman, leave my life. Woman, be so kind. Woman, well, you know, well, you know, yeah, well, you know. Zero in returns, zero, she's my girl. Woman, well, you know, well, you know, yeah, well, you know. So, I mean, it's like basically like they were just trying to put words together that kind of made sense so that they could sing them. And there are other songs on that album that really don't have any lyrics. They're just kind of Klaus making sounds to a melody line that goes with the music and then Michael solos. And Michael's really the only one who seems to be ready to make an album. You know, 
he at the age of 16 sounds kind of like early Iomi uh, in some of the riffs, in some of the solos. It's, you know, blues-based, pentatonic, but fast. And like I say, if you hear a song like I'm Going Mad, it has a Sabbathy riff. The solo is kind of Iomi style, but then the lyrics are like weird and spoken word and fucking psychedelic and whatever. So... They really haven't found their legs yet. It sounds kind of like an unfinished demo, in a sense, to me. But it's still huge because it's an album. They're, they're a German band. They made an album. It's in English. And they can tour off of it. You know, they can... Um, they have credibility in that sense, you know. And there's one video. There's a video for I'm Going Mad. And it's... Um, hilarious like they're on this hillside they're playing uh michael has a les paul he's tall and skinny and young and you know playing that les paul rudy has a v and he looks like super uncomfortable kind of standing there and he's strumming it like you know it's loud and it's electric but it's but he's very strummy with it because he doesn't really have his rhythm style yet. You know, he's just trying to play the song, you know, and they're all just kind of trying to play the song and and they're kind of just trying to make a video. Like during one part, they all like run across the land and they prance around because they don't know what to do. They're just like, okay, they're being filmed. So they're like, okay, what to do now? Okay, play the song, you know, or it's funny. And Lonnie's over here watching it with me. And she notices like a lot of shit that I never noticed. So for those first few early videos, she's like, man, check out their teeth, you know. And later on, she's like, oh, look, you got the this is Klaus got his shit fixed for this one. And check out Uli's new grill on this one and whatever shit that I didn't notice. But once she said it, then I can't notice anything else. And she notices their outfits and their hairstyles and you know all the all the other shit. And whereas I'm noticing the differences in the music, she's noticing the differences in their fashion sense and shit like that. And so now I'm getting both, you know, and I'm noticing both. And it's really crazy how much they would change from the first album to the second album, even more so from the second album to the third album, and even more so on subsequent albums until they would become the scorpions that we all love and and uh and no i get into um 
to the first album. It's recorded in 1972. By that time, Rudolph is 22. Klaus is 22. And just to give you the respective ages of the people that would later on join the Scorpions, even though they're not in the Scorpions at this time, Herman was around that same age. He would have been 21 at the time. Francis, the bassist, for the for the future of the Scorpions. Herman Rarebell it would be the drummer of the Scorpions for the glory years. Francis Buckholz would be the bassist of the Scorpions for the glory years. But at this time, they hadn't joined the band yet, but they're a couple of years younger than Rudolph and Klaus. Now, after that, there's a tremendous drop-off because by the t- at the time that the first album was recorded, Michael was only 16. And everybody always makes a big deal about that. Well, yeah, Michael Shaker recorded that first album when he was 16. But they never tell you that the dude that ended up replacing him in that band, Uli, was only 16 at the time, too. And the dude who would replace him subsequently in the Scorpions, Matthias, would have only been 15 at the time that that first album was recorded. So the Scorpions' basic formula was get that young hot guitar player. And that's what they did. And it worked out super fucking great for them. Now it would also be a great time to tell you about that the Scorpions were another band that I had pronunciation problems with over that time. Because like I say, back in those days, you never heard the names of the guys that were in the band. You read them on the back of the record or in a magazine or something like that. So to me, Uli, I had never heard of a dude named Uli you know for all I knew his his name was like Ulysses or something like that and so we shortened it and in our minds it was Uli so he was Uli Roth to me for the first I don't know six seven ten years that I had ever heard of him um Francis Buckholz was to me Buchholz because that's what it looked like it said to me and I had never heard that last name before so I had Francis Buchholz and Yuli Roth and Matthias, who is Matthias in, in proper pronunciation, but to me it was Matthias. So, you know, the Scorpions were a perfect band to mispronounce because, and so I did for many, 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 many years until I started hearing their names on media, on video, on things, you know, that I figured out, oh shit, okay, that's the way, you know, you say it. So the bottom line with Lonesome Crow is it's made in 72 and they're able to tour off it. They're able to open for bigger bands and one of the bigger bands that they opened for was UFO. Now UFO was going through its own struggles with guitar players or whatever and you know they're watching the Scorpions every night and Michael Schenker is obviously the highlight of the Scorpions. You know he's 18 years old by that time tearing it up and UFO wants him and they really don't want to wait you know they want him like now you know so they make the offer supposedly it was with the blessing of Rudy that Michael left the band and um, becomes part of UFO now they don't really know anyone who can cover these parts for the rest of the tour outside of a friend of Michael's named Uli Roth So, Uli joins the band for the rest of the tour. When the tour's over, they approach Uli about joining the band permanently, but he says no. 
He's got his own band called Don Road. They do a Hendrix thing where basically he's Hendrix. He plays and he sings and, you know, and it, and it's a different kind of a style. And he wanted to continue doing that thing. He didn't want to join, you know, the Scorpions, which was a band that really didn't have like a really great direction. Although, since they had been touring with UFO and watching other bands that were coming through, they had pretty much decided that they wanted to go in a more hard rock direction, which was kind of cool with um, with Uli. But like I said, he has his own band. So Rudy, as is his way, kind of gets what he wants without without getting what he wants because he figures out that he's just going to, instead of having Uli join his band, he's just going to join Uli's band, which is called Don Road. So he joins Uli's band. And then he says, hey, you know what? I have this great singer, Klaus. I'm going to bring him along too. So Klaus is now in Don Road with Rudy and Uli. They already have Francis Buckholz as their bassist and a drummer named Jurgen Rosenthal. And so they merge the bands together, basically. And since the Scorpions already have an album, they decide to call themselves the Scorpions. Well, there you go. There's Rudy winning the game because, in essence, he got Uli to join the Scorpions without getting Uli to join the Scorpions. And he got a bassist to boot and a drummer. So now the band is it's a much better band. Uh, it's a band with direction. And with Uli in the band, they did not miss a step as far as having a badass guitar player because... Uli Roth was every bit the guitarist that Michael was, if not better, which is, I mean, crazy to say because Michael Shaker would go on to become an icon in UFO and an icon and guitar playing in general, hard rock, heavy metal guitar playing. But so would Uli. So it's crazy to think that two of the greatest guitarists of all time two of the greatest leaders of the hard rock guitar movement, shred movement, whatever you want to call it, would be childhood friends who would end up in the same band in Germany. Crazy shit. So they go into the studio and they record Fly to the Rainbow, which is, I mean, you're not going to put on this album and, and just be blown away by how great of an album it is from start to finish. It's not that kind of a record. They're still trying to find their sound, you know. You can tell that there's some Uli songs and then there's some Rudy songs and they're different. They, the band doesn't really have an identity. But they did record Speedy's Coming on that album and it starts to kind of give you a hint of that Scorpion sound.
it sounds like the Scorpions, you know, and that's the first song that that really has that, you know. Um, Rudy's finding his legs as a rhythm player, you know. He's starting to figure out that that you can't just really strum those power chords. You have to dig into those motherfuckers. And he does that, you know. And he becomes a very precise and very strong rhythm player. Which opens up, you know, the lead possibilities for, um, for Uli. And he takes over that shit, you know. His, um, his solos are very Hendrix. But they are more than that because he has a classical influence that Hendrix didn't have. You know, he uh, he takes the tremolo work to the next level. He takes the wah-wah work to the next level. On the tremolo uh, work, he even had um, these tremolo bars manufactured out of, you know, fine German steel. They're long, fat tremolo bars, way longer and fatter than the, than the stock ones that came on there. And he makes use of them in a way that had not been done before. Because it's so long, he could actually pick with it. And and he gets a different sound out of it because it's a different leverage that he puts on it. And he's no longer snapping tremolos like he was doing with those stock Fender ones. Because that's how crazy action he was putting on them. Still in all though, it's still a Strat that he's playing. A 75 Strat, basically stock through a Marshall 100 watt. Stock. It's loud as fuck, sharp as fuck, fucking clean as fuck. It's a way different sound than what you would expect from a hard rock heavy metal band. That type of a sound was brought by Rudy with his flying V through a Marshall 50 watt that was a lot easier to overdrive and gave him that power chord sound that would become the basis for future Scorpions. And one thing that's great for me on this record is the abundance of guitar solos. There's just so much space for Uli to go off, and he does. And you can tell that he's a special player. You know, this is his first album that he's ever made. But again, he's the standout to me of this band. Klaus is starting to find his voice too. And you can tell there's a lot of talent there, but, you know, he struggles with his pronunciation. They struggle with the lyrics still. This is obviously a band that's still in its formative years, in its formative phase. Which brings us to the next album, In Trance, which comes out in 1975. Now, by this time, the band is starting to find its identity more. It's a hard rock band. They meet Dieter Dirks. He becomes their producer. He becomes, I think, basically their manager, too. And, you know, and practically a member of the band in the studio. Now, this really can't be overstated because Dieter Dirks is an integral part of the Scorpion sound. Much like Martin Birch was for Iron Maiden, Tom Allen was for Judas Priest, Mutt Lang was for ACDC and Def Leppard. Dieter Dirks was that for the Scorpions. He helped them find their sound. He got the best performances out of them. And this all starts on Entrance. Entrance has like a 50-50 mix of Uli songs and then songs that are Klaus and Schenker. Uli songs make more sense lyrically, but Rudy's and Klaus's are more catchy and hooky, you know? 
the guitar sound is better. The production is better, like on the solos. The solos, sometimes they come panning from left to right. They come flying in. You know, it's like it's like the solo takes the whole spectrum. And um, and that's Dieter Dirks and Uli Roth, you know, who, who come up with these things that were way ahead of their time, way ahead of their time. And while the album's not like a complete killer album from beginning to end, it is a much stronger album, much more Scorpions-like album, and it's got songs on it, that songs that can still be played today. Uli Roth still plays Dark Lady, and Entrance is one of the great Scorpion songs of all time. This album also features drummer Rudy Lenners, who would be the drummer for this album and also for Virgin Killer. Virgin Killer is the next album, comes out in 1976. It's the same band. It's also Dieter Dirks. The production's even better. The sound's even better. And now you're starting to see the direction of the band go in a kind of a dirty direction, you know? They're starting to have songs like Virgin Killer, Backstage Queen, Hellcat, you know, because they had toured with UFO and they had toured with Kiss and they started to figure out, you know what, maybe these like suggestive, nasty type things work, you know, and of course they do, you know, so uh, they had already kind of started that on Entrance, you know, and the cover of Entrance is basically like a like a chick grinding on uh, Uli Strat, which was, you know, controversial. But nothing would prepare us for the album cover that was Virgin Killer. As a matter of fact, we never even saw the original album cover for Virgin Killer because it was banned in the United States. Our, co- our cover just had the band on the front cover. But the original cover has a girl, about 10, naked. Uh, and in front of her, it looks like a pane of glass, which is like shattered in front of her pelvic area which i mean in any era that would be i mean nowadays forget about it as a matter of fact wikipedia just got out of a lawsuit for this album cover just for putting it on their page and people wanting to get rid of it because they said it was kitty porn or whatever so that's how bad the fucking album cover is 
But I guess at the time in the 70s, well, I mean, it was still a big deal because it was banned in the United States. In other countries, it went out as as normal. But obviously, you know, in the United States, we're more prudish. And in this case, I think it's a, it's a good thing. That album cover should have never fucking came out, dude. It's like not. And with the title Virgin Killer, it's even more so. Even though the song is not strictly about what you might think it would be about. Still, in conjunction with that album cover, it was really, like, you know, kind of bad news. And some of the guys in the band realized that today, and some of them are like, yeah, no, no big deal, you know, whatever. Anyway, this album, while, again, to me, it's not a complete kick-ass album from beginning to end, but now we're getting there. And now we've got, um, you know, like I said, Backstage Queen, Virgin Killer, Hellcat, you know, Catch Your Train. These are all badass songs. But to me, the best song on the album and one of the great songs of all time, and in my opinion, the first example of shred guitar on a recorded album is Pictured Life. <laughs> Listen to that song and you can really draw a direct line between that and like Ingve, you know, many, many, many years before. But you can see where like the seed and then what would become. And that whole album is a shred fest and it's so unexpected because there was nothing like that at the time. I mean, there was dudes out there, you know, like Blackmore that were shredding the fuck out of the stage, but not on albums. His solos on albums were just, you know, regular old solos, not nothing like what Uli was doing. And as another example, you know, check out the solo on Yellow Raven. So weird song. It's a weird solo, but it's so far ahead of its time. It's not even funny.
Which brings us to the next album, which is Taken by Force, 1977. This is a huge album because um, Rudy Leonard leaves the band. He's the drummer. Uh, he just, you know, sometimes when you go out on the road all the time, you find out that this lifestyle is not for everyone, you know, much like it was with the original drummer from Rush, much like it was with, you know, a lot of dudes, they just, they can't do it, you know, Paul Diano, they can't do it, you know, so, um, so he leaves the band, and Herman Rarebell, who actually had already moved to London and was living in London, he meets Michael Schenker over there. Michael Schenker's already in UFO. Michael Schenker's a star. He's on top of the world. And he meets Herman Rarebell in uh, some place called the Speakeasy in London. You know, they're drinking buddies or whatever the fuck, which I'm sure Michael had many of, you know, in those days because that, that was his, his kick. So Michael tells Herman, hey, man, my brother's got this band in Germany. It's called the Scorpions. They're going to come play out here soon. And they're looking for a drummer. You should fucking audition, whatever, whatever, whatever. So he does. He gets the gig. They give him a ticket to fly to uh, Germany in a few weeks or whatever, whatever. And then the ticket doesn't work. It's hilarious because this could this could easily be a pivotal moment. You know, they could just they could be like, OK, you know what? We'll send you another ticket. But in the meanwhile, they find some other guy in Germany who's hot shit. Or they just, you know, somebody takes it as a sign. Like, hey, you know what, man? Maybe, the, you know what? The ticket didn't work. It should have worked, man. Maybe this is a sign. Maybe this is the wrong guy. Or, you know, a lot of times shit happens like that. But in this case, they uh, sent him another ticket. It worked out fine. And he ends up arriving at Germany on the day of Klaus Meine's wedding. So he shows up and there's a car which takes him to the wedding. And so that's where he meets everyone for the first time. And it's everyone because the whole crew is there. The whole band is there. Dieter Dirks is there. And everybody meets uh, Herman at that one time, right? Now, one of the first things that they notice about Herman is that from having lived in London for so long, he speaks really good English, better than most of them. Him and Uli are the, the ones that are, that are speaking the best English and Herman is speaking a little bit better English and more of a slang English because he's lived with it. Whereas Uli learned English more from books and, and stuff like that. Herman is, was all up in London for a long time. So he has a better working knowledge of English and he's a dirty motherfucker. You know, like he's the kind of he's the kind of dude who, who tells dirty jokes and, you know, who's uh, banging a bunch of chicks and you know, or trying to, and, you know, he's the dirtbag of the bunch, in a sense, which would come into play a lot lyrically later on, and on this album, on the song, He's a Woman, She's a Man, which uh, came from a encounter that they had in France when they met some transsexuals that they thought were girls that turned out to not be girls, and Herman wrote a song about that, and that would be a template for things to come because Herman would write a lot of songs in the future that would become Scorpion's hits. On this album, He's a Woman, She's a Man is a cool song. It's not one of the best songs. The best songs for me are uh, Sales of Sharon and We'll Burn the Sky, which We'll Burn the Sky is basically, along with Entrance, is those are the first two, like, Really, real scorpions 
power ballads. is insane you know and the lyrics for we'll burn the sky were written by monica Danneman, who was uh uli's girlfriend at the time she had also been hendrix's girlfriend up until the time he died she later uh was killed in what uh, appeared to be a suicide but uli roth thinks she was murdered because she knew some things about how Hendrix was killed. Anyway, it that's a whole thing unto itself. But she wrote the lyrics to Will Burn the Sky. And man, that's a great fucking song. Now the fucked up thing about Taken by Force is that it would be Uli's last album with the band. And it really came at a time when he was really getting ready to make a breakthrough as a guitarist. Like he was going to be a superstar guitarist on this next album to come out if it ever had came out, which it didn't. And the thing is, is that Uli already knew before they recorded Taken by Force that it would be his last record. He asked Francis, who had been in a band with Uli since the beginning in Don Road, whether he should tell the band that he was leaving before they actually started recording the album or wait till the album was done. And Francis told him, wait till it's done. Uh, Good thing, because I guess that probably helped the album come out 
as good as it did. But, you know, also sad because, I mean, you know, Uli was going to take off and really the band was starting to click on all cylinders. And I don't know how you how you're expected to recover when your star as guitar player is leaving the band. But they would. The next album to come out is the Tokyo Tapes. Now, the Tokyo Tapes were recorded in Japan and it was their first tour of Japan. And what they didn't know when they went over there, or they did, like theoretically, they knew that their album had gone gold in Japan. That's, you know, 500,000 copies. That's a lot. So, you know, they knew that there would be a lot of people at their concert or whatever, but they had no idea that they were huge stars already in Japan. In Germany, they were nobody. In London, in England, they were, you know, known by a few people or whatever. But in Japan, they were already stars. They talk about going there. They talk about there being like chicks for the first time, groupies, you know, uh, sold out arenas. This is all new. And so they decided to go ahead and record those shows in Japan, which according to Uli, those were the best shows that he ever did with the Scorpions. And it shows, you know, this album is fucking awesome. And it's the first album to me of the Scorpions that is a banger from beginning to end because it's basically a greatest hits album of the first albums with all the albums with Uli and it has one song from the first album with Michael. So it's a greatest hit record and it's also, it updates the sound of all of those records because, you know, very much like Unleashed in the East, for Judas Priest, the studios weren't up to snuff at the time that they recorded those first records. So when they go and record um, the live album, you know, the sound is fresher. It's a little bit faster. It's a little more aggressive. It's more heavy and it's harder. And they get to pick all the songs that they like from all those first albums. So there's no bad songs. There's no weak points. It's a fucking kick-ass album.
basically with the scorpions the way the scorpions are if you told me that i could only have two scorpions albums i would say okay give me tokyo tapes and give me worldwide live because it's the uli era all on one record and then it's the matthias era all on one record and both of those records kick fucking ass the sad part about that is that uli has now left the scorpions having never even toured in the United States with them, by the way. That's like, he left like right before they were about to blow up huge. And, you know, you would think, because he was just like starting this whole fucking shred thing, that, you know, maybe he wanted uh, to do more of that. Maybe they weren't letting him like fully express his shreddiness. No, he went completely the other way didn't do another fucking shreddy thing for like the next 10 years and just started experimenting with all this, you know, hippy-dippy, psychedelic, orchestral, whatever. You know, so the bottom line is he was gone. He was going to go do his own thing and he needed to be replaced. Well, this is where fucking controversy just is born because there was so much shit happening at once and and I'm going to do my best to break it down for you. Okay, so the Tokyo Tapes came out in 78. Now it's 79, all right? Um, the Scorpions are in London holding auditions for guitar players. They see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dudes, but they can't really narrow down the do that they want you know basically they feel like these auditions that they held in london were a complete waste of time they go back home and rudy just kicking it around the neighborhood or whatever whatever he sees this kid matthias you know they they cross paths at the music store all the time he's seen dude play he knows he can play uh But by now, the Scorpions are a professional band. They've got many albums and many tours under their belts and whatever. And Matthias has never made a record. You know, he's in a local band in Hanover or whatever, but it's no big deal. You know, also, he's significantly younger than the band. But really, he's only like one year younger than than Michael was. And he's only one year younger than Uli was. He's only really young in the fact that he's inexperienced compared to those two. So the bottom line is they hire Matthias and um, and they starting to get ready to record a new album. Well, during this time, Michael Schenker has also left UFO. He's gotten married and he's on honeymoon in Germany. So he decides to, you know, call up his brother and like, hey, you know, I'm in town, whatever, you know, you want to hook up, whatever, whatever. So they do. And uh, he's like, hey, so, you know, what do you do? What are you up to, Rudy? What are you doing? You know, what's the what's the news? And Rudy's like, well, we're going to go in the studio. We're going to record um, a new album. And, you know, I have these songs I'm working on. You know, if you want to take a look, come and help out, you know, whatever, since you're in town. So Michael does. He shows up. He uh, starts working on some of the demos, you know, and this is where it starts to get controversial because at this point we begin to have two diverging storylines. 
what Michael says happened, what Rudy says happened, what Michael used to say happened, what Rudy used to say happened, and then what they're saying now. Because they're beefing with each other right now as we speak. And the story of what happened is um, sketchy at best. So here's the best that I can put it together for you. Michael shows up, starts working on songs with Rudy. How many songs does he work on? We don't really know. Which songs does he work on? We don't really know. Rudy says that basically Michael only wrote one song. Michael kind of says, I was in on all of those songs. But the bottom line is that it didn't really matter officially what uh, Michael was going to be on because he wasn't officially going to be on any of the songs. Because Dieter Dirks owned the production company, owned the publishing company, and he had rules as to who he would enter into publishing deals with, and he wasn't going to enter into any publishing deal with anybody who wasn't in the band. So, basically, it was agreed that whatever songs Michael works on or whatever, they were going to be like, he was going to get paid under the table. It wasn't going to be, he wasn't going to be officially uh, on the publishing of the song. And according to everyone, that was okay with everyone. Rudy was going to pay Michael out of his share. And the rest, again, is sketchy as to which songs or, or which parts or anything like that. Bottom line is that Michael was in the studio with Rudy and Matthias was there. This is where the stories diverge. You know, according to Matthias, he was in the studio and ready to go, ready to play on everything. According to Rudy, Matthias was a little green. He didn't really know what was expected of him. And Michael was there. So, you know, why not just use Michael? And Michael's a star. And, you know, and then according to Michael, uh, Matthias wasn't ready. They needed Michael to do the leads on the record. They needed Michael to contribute songs on the record. They needed Michael. That's according to, to Michael himself, right? So they go in, they record the album, and it's a great album. But I'm going to talk more about the album later on. 
right now, while I'm all started with the controversy still, I'm going to stay with the controversy. Okay? Now, so word gets out that Michael is working with the Scorpions, which is huge news because he just left UFO. He's one of the biggest bands in the world. Um, he was a superstar guitar player, and he's with a band now that's virtually unknown outside of Germany and Japan is virtually unknown. And so now uh, the Scorpions are starting to get some publicity and some play and they're in the magazines and they're, you know, in the news and whatever. And they get signed by Mercury Records, which just so happens to also be the label that had UFO. So I'm not saying that Mercury signed them because Michael Schenker was in the band, but I'm not saying that that wasn't the reason why. According to some people, it is. According to some people, it isn't. Whatever. The bottom line is, Michael Bean in the band got the Scorpions a level of attention that they had never had before. According to Michael, this is a well-thought-out scheme by Rudy. And according to Rudy, he's just helping out his brother who, you know, who needed help or whatever. And, you know, and meanwhile, if I can come up off it as well, then great, you know. Now, for the sake of the controversy... I'm going to go a little bit forward and tell you that um, that when it came time to plan the tour, Michael decided that he would join. And they were not going to say no to Michael Shanker joining the band. So basically, they kind of kicked Matthias to the curb and said, you know, uh, thanks, dude. Sorry. But, you know, Michael is, wants to be in the band. And obviously, he's fucking Michael Shanker. We're going to do this. And so they start the tour. After a couple of weeks, it becomes obvious that it's not going to work out. Michael says it's because he didn't want to be playing all those Uli songs. He wanted to do his own thing. He wanted to express himself. That's why he left UFO in the first place, because he wanted to do some, some his own thing. And, uh, and he didn't want to do this. He didn't really want to do this. So he was going to leave. According to Rudy... Michael was all fucked up on alcohol and other drugs. He was fucking moody. He was temperamental. He wasn't playing as good as he used to. Um, he had a lot of problems. He wasn't showing up on time. They were very iffy about whether or not he was going to be reliable or whatever. Which, by the way, was the same things that UFO was saying about Michael. So... You know, that lends it some credibility or whatever. Bottom line, Michael wasn't going to be in the band anymore. And they were going to get Matthias back. Now, another point of controversy during this time is that Michael was playing uh, a V that Rudolph had given him once upon a time. Now, Rudolph had given him this V. It was a cherry red Gibson V. Michael loved it, but he didn't like the color. So... He took a he took a chisel to it and whatever 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 he got the paint off by his own admission he fucked the guitar up he gouged it up pretty good or whatever so it needed to get fixed by a professional so he got a guy who uh you know put like basically like bondoed it and you know got it ready to paint and Michael couldn't decide if he wanted to paint it black or if he wanted to paint it white so they basically came up with the idea, you know what, we're going to paint it half black, half white. And then on the pick guard, we're going to flip those colors so that it, it gives it a real 
trippy effect. It's a one-of-a-kind uh, idea, and it's a one-of-a-kind guitar. And that's the guitar that Michael would be playing during the time that he went on tour with the Scorpions. Now, like I said, that time on tour was short, and he was going to be leaving. At the time that he left, Rudy had liked the look of the black and white V. And he, you know, kind of, I guess he considered it like a Scorpions thing, like a Scorpions look or whatever. So he had one made for himself. His was a little bit different. The pit guard wasn't flipped, so it was just regular half black, half white. But still in all, it's a black and white V, very much like Michael's. Even though it had originally been given to him by Rudy, it was Michael's and Michael's idea. So, um, so Rudy felt compelled to ask Michael, hey man, you know, I got this black and white V. Is it cool if I, if I play it? I, you know, no big deal. And Rudy and Michael said, yeah, go ahead. No big deal. Whatever. So Rudy started playing that V and I don't think Michael really, uh, noticed how, how much, uh, Rudy had gotten attached to it, how much he was playing that thing, how many pictures of him were seen with that V because Michael had made his black and white V like the whole centerpiece of the Michael Schenker group. It would be part of the logo. It would be, um, all in all the publicity pictures. It would be on the album covers. It would be on shirts. It would be everywhere. That black and white V became like Michael's trademark. Meanwhile, Rudy's playing that black and white, a different black and white V in the Scorpions. And many, 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 many years later, when Gibson decided to make Rudy Schenker a signature model, he decided to go with that black and white V. So that black and white V is Rudy Schenker's signature model for Gibson. And a different black and white V is Michael Schenker's signature model for Dean, which Dean is the company that Michael Schenker went with after he lost all of his black and white Gibsons in his divorce. He got divorced. He didn't have the money to pay the lady what he owed her or whatever. So she took all his shit, right? And he needed guitars. <laughs> so he went to Dean and they're like, oh yeah, dude, we, I will make you everything. So basically Dean made him some Gibson V's with a Dean headstock, but you know, all the measurements and everything are the same as his original Gibsons. They played just like his original Gibsons, but now they're Dean's and they're his original black and white design. And that's his signature model. But at the same time, Rudy also has a black and white signature model by Gibson. And Michael's like, dude, what the fuck? Michael is also like, dude, what the fuck? About some money that was owed to him for the songs that he wrote on Love Drive. Like I said, even though he's not officially in the publishing for those songs, there was an agreement between him and Rudy that Rudy would pay him out of his own royalties so that Michael could get paid without having to be legally on the publishing. And that worked out, I guess, for quite a while. But at some point, Rudy stops paying Michael the royalties that he's owed. That's the way Michael sees it. Now, the way that Rudy sees it is that uh, 
around 88 or so, Michael had basically hit the skids. You know, he was doing bad. He was addicted to coke and maybe heroin and alcohol. And he was doing bad. His band had fallen apart. He was trying to put together a new band. And so Rudy said, hey, man, you know what? Come and stay at my pad in Germany. I got the studio there. You could audition musicians. You put your band together or whatever. And when you make an album or whatever, then you can like pay me back for, you know, for the time that you stayed here or whatever it was. Now, that's uh, that's Rudy's side of the story that that that's what he said, that that's what was uh, meant to happen. Now, for me, you know, I don't know. I'm a real nice guy. Like, you know, I mean, I don't have much, but, you know, I I don't mind hooking people up when I do. And to me, it kind of seems like, you know, when you're on top of the world in one of the biggest bands in the world, which the Scorpions were in 88, and your brother needs help, you might, you maybe you leave out the fucking, then you could pay me back part, you know, maybe I just help you out and you don't have to pay me back or, 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 or we just kind of leave that up in the air or you know, or maybe if you totally kill it and become super rich, then you pay me back. But, you know, that never happened. Anyway, the point of the matter is, is that Rudy expected to be paid back for that time, I guess. Michael didn't know or remember or uh, agree that he owed Rudy anything. So he never did pay him anything. And so at some point, Rudy said, well, you never paid me back for that time, so I'm just going to stop paying you for the songs on Love Drive. And that's what happened. And so Michael basically takes all this fucking information and says, look, I'm the one who uh, had Klaus in my band. I brought you Klaus. I'm the one that wrote the songs for the first album. You wouldn't have even been able to make that first album without me. I'm the one that made a big splash by joining UFO. You replaced me in the Scorpions with my friend, Uli. I'm the one that knew Herman. I found Herman for you. I'm the one that wrote the songs on Love Drive. I'm the one that, you know, pumped you guys up to where you would even get that kind of attention for that Love Drive album. I'm the one that came up with that black and white design that now you're playing and now that's your signature model. And now you dye your hair blonde. It's almost like you fucking took everything I fucking gave you and then now you fucking cut me out and now it's like you're trying to be me. It's like you're trying to make people not know that, you know, oh yeah, that's, you know, he's blonde with a black and white guitar. Fucking Michael Schenker is in the Scorpions or, you know, whatever, uh, you know, and and Michael's mad. You know, Michael's mad about all that shit. He says his brother is really, like, not that great a guitar player. Klaus is the only real talent in the band. Um, all this shit, and basically, fuck Rudy, you know? Rudy acts like, you know, it's all a misunderstanding. I love my brother. Business is business. Everything's legal. Everything's right. And I'm fans of both dudes. I mean, obviously, Rudy's not the guitar player that Michael is. He never will be. He never has been. 
but Michael's never been able to write the songs that Rudy writes. Michael's never been the rhythm player that Rudy is. I'm fans of both dudes, right? The only thing that I have as far as perspective is, you know, one dude's got six million net worth, one dude's got eighty million net worth. The dude that's got the eighty million doesn't really need to be billing the dude that's got the eight or whatever the six. You know, when one brother's so much more fucking fortunate than the other and the other brother did have something to do with that success, then the fucking brother with the 80 million doesn't need to be fucking sweating the fucking, the other brother. In fact, I mean, he needs to actually be hooking him up, finding ways to actually help and compensate, you know, the the younger, less, you know, financially fortunate brother. And that's not what happens. Again, you know, there's a lot of people that are just like, you know, business is business. Oh, that's why you never do business with family. Whatever, whatever, whatever. To me, man, I mean, you know, I don't know, man. If you're, if you got 80 million in the bank and you're sweating about some fucking back rent that's owed to you from a million years ago, then I don't know, dude. I just, I, I have a hard time seeing it your way. Then again, everybody knows that Michael's fucking batshit crazy. Everybody knows that Michael's been on drugs and off of drugs and having this and that type of psychosis or whatever. So, you know, who knows? So basically, that's a wrap-up of the controversy and that's also a wrap-up of part one of this podcast because I'm already at an hour and ten minutes and I haven't even gotten to Matthias yet. So I don't want to make you listen to a two-hour podcast. So we're going to end this one here. And I'll be back with part two of the Scorpions, Love Drive and Beyond. Until the next one, this is Big Frog and I'm out.